1: Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman podcast coming at you today after many technical difficulties interviewing <laughs> mr Mr Matt Ryan Matt how are you doing
2: man I can't complain about it It's been a heck of an opener here in Mississippi for us this last week guess it's not the opener anymore we're you know right at two weeks into it so can't complain about it one bit at
1: all. Yeah, man. I appreciate your uh, your patience. We actually tried to record this last week and
0: uh and Google meetings had other plans. So Yeah, yeah we, we we really struggled. <laughs> but we got it all worked out here. I'm I'm excited, Matt, to talk to you. Uh me and Andrew just got done with the opening weekend here for the private lane guys in, in Alabama. We've been on mm-hmm. Andrew's hunting club. It's been been a little exciting, had some run ins. Well, oh, I've got I've got listen, I've got some great footage of Andrew cursing like crazy after <laughs> we were both birds. I'm telling you, dude, we could have a whole 15 minute highlight reel of this Andrew Curse just cursing out, just screaming out loud, man, after we ran into some But, anyways, was that today? Today it happened, <laughs> I think, on Saturday. I mean, it has happened a bunch of times. I, I lost count, but there's a lot of footage of it. We, you know, got like three or four hours worth. So, um, yeah, that's,
2: yeah, that's but, funny. But did I promise you're not the only one that's had that issue this year, too. Oh, yeah, no, so. I'm, I'm
0: sure a lot of listeners have dealt with this, too. Their season is open, but Matt, it kind of, Get into this conversation I'm excited to talk to you man i've interviewed you before for at least one or maybe two strut reports in the past when we were doing strut report mm-hmm. episodes um but you're a guy that you know we've wanted to get on the podcast to talk turkey hunting you know you're you're a guy that you know from the southeast you know uh, um has been successful but you're also a dude that to me there's something about your personality that i really like especially after actually getting like spent some time <laughs> with you while we were in line to get our uh, fox vest up at uh, nwtf at like i don't know it was i think y'all got there at like what 11 o'clock at at that night, the night before?
2: Yeah. And so we, um, me and my wife were coming into town. We're getting there like 10, 45, 11 o'clock the night before. And I noticed they sent that email out. And a buddy of mine was already in town. He was in bed getting ready to go to sleep. And I called him. I was like, hey, you seen the email? And we just started jokingly. We said, well, let's just go up there tonight and just sit there all night long. And 10 minutes into the conversation, it was no longer a joke. I was gonna. I dropped my wife off to the hotel because she didn't want to go hang out for the night to get her vest. And we just went and got in line at, like, 11, 11.30 that night before. But um, when was it? The guy from South Carolina, I can't remember his name. It was slipping me. He got in line at 5 o'clock the night before. And he, I don't think he sat down the entire time, to be honest. He paced and was nervous. Skipped family vacation the first couple of days of it to come out there and get it. Like, he was, he was serious about it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, no, we yeah. were uh, – I think we got – Email went out and it will not make the whole conversation about this, but it's kind of funny. Email went out and uh, I was staying, me and my me and a buddy were mine. We were staying at the hotel room and uh, he's like, dude, he's like, he's like, we, you know, at, before the email went out, we're like, oh, we are going to get there like 5 6 o'clock. Oh, we'll mm-hmm. be good. The email came out and then like rumors started talking about like people like potentially going like that night. And then we got called, we got a call at three. 45 almost four o'clock in the morning like hey dude there's already like one of our buddies just got down there uh hunter staples and he's like dude there's already mm-hmm. you know 15 20 people in line Like, oh we're oh, going yeah. right now so we woke up through <laughs> our clothes on dude and i think we're in the building by four fifteen, four thirty, something like that and i was 29th in line uh my buddy kyle was with me or he, he got there a little bit later and uh mm-hmm. Just uh, Devin Duncan, who's with me as well, we we got in line, and I was like, dude, this is crazy. And, of course, yeah. saw you up there, and I was like, oh, well, Matt's here. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah. And then come to find out you've been in line since 11 p.m. I'm like, dude, this is – I'm like, y'all are wild. I'm like, dude, I, I need a – we need a couple cases of beer and, and some bourbon and sit there for that long, I think. Well, but, uh, there was a
2: guy that uh, brought – a bunch of very well flavored bourbons up there for everybody to indulge in.
0: There was and I wish but, I f- remember that dude's name because he gave me a couple swigs of Blanton's. so I was very happy in generous <laughs> for him at four thirty in the morning. So uh dude was from Mississippi. I think he's from Memphis, Mississippi anyways. But uh yeah, it was it's funny and interesting. But dude, after we, mm-hmm. we met and had done all that and, and got the vest and everything, I was like, dude, we ought to get you on the podcast. I was thinking about this and finally it's kinda come around but Matt, to, to really dive into this conversation, I, I want to talk about your turkey hunting background because I can kind of relate with you about kind of the early on turkey hunting and, and kind of what kind of mm-hmm. happened with you, but give the listeners a perspective of how did you get introduced to turkey hunting? And like, did you come from a turkey hunting family, like with that culture in the family or were you like the first one, like kind of what's your background there and kind of what did that journey look like kind of up to this point?
2: And so it started out, just real random, I guess is the best way to say it, um, my dad didn't turkey hunt. Grandpa didn't turkey hunt. Um, I have an uncle that turkey hunted his entire life. Um, they have quite a bit of acreage up on the White River there in North Arkansas. That, of course, they're struggling with turkey populations too. But when I was younger, junior high, high school, I mean, you could you couldn't walk hundred yards without spooking a, a turkey out of the brush. I mean, they were covered up. But um, I just never never really got into it. They always invited me up there. I was like, nah. I, can, I now I've got golf tournaments since then because I played golf real competitively in high school and it was just time conflicts with all of it. But my junior year of high school, the girl I was dating, she had her and her family had a couple hundred acres. Um, randomly just like, Hey, let's go try to kill a turkey. So I went out there and first time shouldn't have happened. There was like a flat tire on the trailer. that I was pulling a four wheeler with didn't get out there until like eight or nine o'clock because of the, the, getting that tire replaced, um, changed literally parked the foiler and the bird gobbles to the foiler And 10 minutes later, I shot my first turkey. I was like, Oh, that was fun. It was kind of too easy. Like that, that didn't have any of the adventure you hear about of, you know, running here and looping around that and calling here and sitting on them. And so like I said, I just never really dove into it real heavy. Then when I got to undergrad, of course I got, had buddies that kind of started peaking my interest some more, but, when I graduated from Arkansas State and moved to Mississippi there, Mississippi State when I was in vet school, that's where it really started growing. Um, but I never, like once again, never really had family members at Unit or had a mentor at the time. It was just me and my buddies going out and, you know, just sitting in the woods because we didn't want to be studying at the time. And I was learning from them, but I didn't know what I was doing. It was just having fun and hanging out with my buddies. Started learning, you know, and really having my interest grow there. But where it really kind of came up came from is when I got done at Mississippi State, graduated in 2016, um, ended up shooting one or two birds off the public land there when I was in school. Um, but really started putting the pieces together and figuring it out when I was in South Alabama there for those four years. So um, but where I started struggling at and making that transition to like really figuring out not how to hunt a bird, but where they like to be at, which was, you know, step number one was actually due to safety purposes. So I, I was actually, I was camping out at um, a piece of public affair around Starkville and I ran up to um, actually left for Easter Sunday, went to church, ran up and ate some dinner with some people. And when I came back, someone had stole all my stuff. Um, like, knocked my tent down, took sleeping bags out, like stole all my food, left some tables and some other stuff. Um, and so I just like, because of safety purposes I left that area and went to hunt another area and it put me in a completely different terrain and when I got in that different terrain instead of being around um, you know nice pretty wide open ridgetops that the um, the, the game of fish department was keeping planted and looked pretty and beautiful and what you see on TV and a lot of the from all the guide services you weren't really really finding turkeys there past the first day or two just because they're pressured or shot and all that kind of stuff What what forced me into was, like I said, that new area of these, uh, these, I'm going to say proper creek bottoms, because early season, there may not be any greenery down in the creeks, but then they start it up, and they push turkeys up out of the bottoms, or turkeys may stay there depending on what's there, Um, put me into more like the ridge systems that wasn't just one primary ridge. It had a primary ridge with multiple fingers coming off of it for birds to start roosting on, and pine trees and habitat transitions and water availability and just it put started pushing me into those areas and when i shot my first bird off public i was like oh they're in this area i didn't really start putting together they're there because of these features that were there shot my second bird off of it and i was like all right there's something that's here um because of my rotc from undergrad a military I said, let's look at a map and figure out what's here as compared to what is not over there where I've been spending my time at and just kind of started growing from there. Um, and then when I was at in South Alabama, um, met an older gentleman, Joe Hetrick, that really taught, taught me a lot of, a lot of things. That's where my first true big mentor came in at. Um, and it wasn't, Hey, you call turkeys like this, or you need to get better at doing that. It was more of, hey, think about, instead of going directly at him, or taking the easy route, bouncing back and circling around like this, or getting there 10 minutes earlier because he can't see you, or walking down, instead of walk down the middle of the road, walk on the opposite side of the road so that the light sandy roads don't high- show off your um, outline while you're trying to sneak in on them. Just little things that I'm gonna say beginner and early intermediate hunters don't think about, but especially when you're looking at, at public land birds, they're heavily pressured. really, really, really make a difference. The other part of it where I've really been blessed and successful and has led to being successful turkey woods is just time. And just these last six, seven years, I've been able to spend so much time in the woods that 99% of people don't get. It's, I mean, it, like I said, we it's where a lot of it comes from. I, I know I jokingly said I don't, I'm not good. I'm just lucky because I have that much time. But, I mean, that, that's really what it is. Just because I can spend so much time, I, I can just, just roll after them every day because I don't have to do work work until 9 o'clock.
0: Matt, I've got to i got to ask you this. I want to go back to the terrain and topography, how you're saying that, mm-hmm. you know, when you get pushed out of this one area that you weren't having a lot of success in, that had a lot more big fields, pretty hardwood ridges, just, you know, unless you were there the first couple of days of the season, like those turkeys got pushed out of those areas, you went to another mm-hmm. area – We started finding turkeys down the bottoms and also started understanding or figuring out that, you know, it wasn't just about having ridges, but all these ridges with a bunch of these secondary points that come off. What about that kind of habitat where you have a bunch of secondary points drop off into creek bottoms and and bottoms like that? What do you think about after now looking back at the last seven or eight years? Mm -hmm. What about that habitat? Do you think ter- why do turkeys like that kind of area like with all these secondary ridge points drop off to these bottoms? Because we just did a video on this, um that mm-hmm. Andrew just did on the YouTube channel. But like what is your thoughts on why is that kind of topography, that kind of terrain played to such an advantage for not only Turkeys being there, but also as like an area to focus on as a turkey hunter?
2: So I think it's just because it gives Turkeys one safety and security, because we're looking at one ridge, if they're not on the left or right side of it, and just will happen to be on the opposite side as a predator of some type. They just don't have the safety and security. Because if you have a primary ridge with nothing on it, if you're on that ridge and it's wide open, you can see down it for hundreds of yards and they can see you, but they can also be seen by something that can be hiding in a brush pile or behind a tree and wait for them to walk by, such so as, you know, Bobcats, coyotes, whatever it may be, people. Um, but then those other secondary ridges, when they're there, You know, instead of having one long ridge, you've got, like we were talking about with your power line earlier, you got one ridge here and then one ridge there next, and then get behind that next ridge and either sit there all day or as they're, like I ran into this morning with a bird, he just peeked his head over and said, okay, let's see what's there before I go over. Do I feel comfortable before I completely expose myself? If I don't feel comfortable, I'm going to go back. If I feel comfortable, I'm going to go ahead and cross. Um, And then the other part of that also is it gives them options with roosting. when I was, I'm trying to get through this without saying any names since it's all public land, but when I was hunting, um, these areas throughout South Alabama, I'm, and I felt this way before I even, the research stuff came out from, from everybody last couple of years is that it was never one bird roosting in one spot. It was just a group of birds that would come through and roost in the same areas. And it gives those birds more areas to rotate through and roost. Um, that way, you know, if it's one ridge, the dominant bird that playing that ridge is going to roost off the end of it until he's shot. Um, those areas that have multiple finger ridges coming off of them and areas for them to easily kind of walk up top of that ridge and pitch up into a tree, um, you know, they may not have the the best place because they're not the dominant bird in that area that wants to be right there. They can walk 50 to 75 yards east, north, southeast or west and pitch off into the next ridge and still be, in the areas where it's the birds, while they're kind of waiting for those, uh, whether if it's a young jenny or kind of subordinate hens to to slide out and start looking for another gobbler as well, they're there just waiting to receive them. So the
1: the terrain thing that kind of brings to mind like a hunt I was just ta- uh, telling you about from yesterday where there was this mm-hmm. one particular ridge point that, that goes out and drops off pretty hard into a creek bottom and we had a, a new turkey hunter with us yesterday and I was telling him that we should go over there for because it was an afternoon hunt and I'm like I think they're going to roost there and on the way yeah. there that's when we caught those gobblers crossing that power line they were walking down that ridge point uh, to mm-hmm. the end of it so they were crossing going towards that point and I'm like yeah see so it looks like they're going down there to roost uh, so is that something that that you're targeting, like, pretty much every time you go out in the morning, you're looking for a ridge point like that, uh, assuming there's going to be a, a roosted gobbler on it?
2: Oh, 100%. Um, once again, going back just to, you know, being lucky and blessed as I am with my work schedule and being able to get out there every morning, I've been able to quickly locate in this area around within an hour of work, you know, a kind of a set of historic roost sites. And then once I figure those out, when I'm lo- looking for new areas, I'll look for areas that mimic that, whether well, if it's um,
0: God. <laughs> I'm getting excited, sorry. It's a video I mean, the, the Patreon people can see this this video is on Patreon now, but uh, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, not, not to but, distract, um, I'm just getting excited.
2: But, uh, you know, where if, especially if you, can, you can have like planted pines or, or pine ridge with a hardwood bottom that they can pitch off into um, like I said, they, they they set these sites and they focus on different areas like that and it seems to be like the, you may not be in the same piece of ground, but if you find that same scenario on that new piece of ground, I'm definitely going to start there, especially if I can find a high point up above it where I can listen down onto them and hear further than trying to listen up th- from the bottom, up through all that, that foliage and everything starting to, to come through it. Because it's definitely easier hearing from above the trees um, or as high as you can get than trying to have them gobble down through the tree limbs, through the underbrush, throw it over two finger ridges. They may have to go throw it over just because that sounds get to cock and bounce off and move. You just won't hear it as, as well as if you're above them. I,
1: I, I want to keep talking about this, but something that just popped into my head and I, I, I don't want to lose it is, uh, what are your thoughts on like specifically this time of year? Like, I don't I'm sure it's probably the same for y'all in Mississippi, but here mm. in Alabama, it is greening up big time. There's leaves coming on. Uh, all the Mm -hmm. underbrush is starting to green up and this is the time of year where every year I get burned bad because I'm used to hearing birds gobble with no leaves and that that sound carries a lot better and then this time of year it it starts greening up and I think they're way further and I run right through them is that something you deal with a lot? Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
2: So I used to um, I used to deal with that real bad but what I've started doing is and this is once again thanks to, to Joe down there in South Alabama, I used to hear a bird gobble and I would take off sprint and try to get into him before he, you know, and then cut it halfway and stop. And I'm like, all right, where's he at? I, w- I try to do that one more hunt with him. He said, no, sit here for another 15 minutes and let's see how many bird- more birds gobble. And two things happened. One, we because I got that initial, ex- initial excitement out of my system, I moved better on that bird, uh, moved slower to him. But then also that particular morning, um, we heard four more additional birds gobble from that point. And this just so happened to be the second day of season down there. Um, in 20, actually 2020, my last year down there. Um, and so we went in, we shot a bird open in the morning. That second morning, move this area, heard five total. Um, like I said, four more after we heard the initial bird moved in, shot the initial bird cause he ended up being the closest, but because we were slow and waited and took, kind of tallies what was going on the next four four out of the next six days we shot those other four birds just because he made me slow down not only for because not only because he wanted to see if there's a better bird in a better location but to take account of what else was there um and so what i've kind of adjusted that for me to do what helps me is it goes back to Modern day turkey hunting, I'll call it, um, and having the accessibility for Onyx or Hunt Stand or whatever mobile mapping system you prefer. Um, and the first thing I do when I hear one gobble is instead of moving on it, I pull up my phone, look at a map, and I set a pin. I say, "Okay, I don't, I don't care if he's there or not. Based on where I usually find turkeys at, I bet this is where he's at." And then I, I as I go in closer to that one spot, I'm like, "Okay, I know I'm not getting too close." I feel like I'm getting close, so I'm going to stop and try to listen to him gobble a little bit more. Um, and that's kind of what happened this morning. I heard one, heard him gobbles like, it's windy. I'm not sure where he's at. I think he's going to be here over on the private side. So I'm just going to move slow and kind of watch this map and make sure I'm not bumping off this next finger ridge and, and everything before I get to it.
0: Dude, this is so but, good. Oh, my God, I got so many questions. <laughs> it,
2: it's just about, like I so said, as you're hunting, figuring out, okay, this will – help me slow down before without moving in too quick on them um i will say new turkey hunters and i say that because i was there especially the first you know three four five birds you shoot it it's hard not to just sprint to them because you want to shoot them that bad but move but being that fast pace like you bolt 40 kind of kind of turkey hunter i bump so many birds off of roads and off the roost and all kinds of stuff but once Joe taught me and forced me to slow down, things started clicking and rolling.
1: Yeah, I can uh, I can relate. These last couple of days, I've been in a little bit of a rush. I'm <laughs> I'm we're like four days from our due date on our baby, so I'm trying to get some hunts in <laughs> yeah. before my baby's yeah. born. Um, so when you talk about slowing down and and not you know going straight to the birds. Uh, what are your thoughts on basically how long that bird will stay there? Like, are you very confident that bird is going to stay in that spot? Because this this, uh, is not the case really as much anymore, but I used to be like part of the rush to get to him was like, well, I don't know how long he's going to stay there. I don't know if hens are going to go to him. I don't know if he's going to leave or just whatever. Yep. So, so what's your experience been with that about those gobblers, like holding to a spot for like an hour, two hours, four hours, whatever the case may be.
2: And so I really feel that if a bird is killable that morning that if you're if you're patient on your approach and you, you disturb and, and let him know you're there less that you have more likely then you're more likely to kill him. meaning that if you're really fast and really loud getting to 100 yards because at night they're hearing deer run over under them they're hearing coyotes run under them and all that kind of stuff and so they're used to predators making all this sound. And so but if you're really quiet and slow and you may you may have been doing that you may only get to 150 to 175 yards instead, but he's less keyed into you being there and, and on the other side of that is if he's roosting with his live hens, you're, realistically your chances are killing him are next to zero. like he's gonna have to be a very 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 um, greedy kind of turkey and gobbler to want to leave those hens to try to find another one especially with how the, naturally they are to where the hens go to the gobblers when, they, when they're sounding off. And so a lot of times what what I'm doing is I'm being patient and getting in there close to where I feel that if they're ready to play the game, they'll want to play the game, but not, not so close that if they're not ready and I get to the point where I have to leave and back out and go to work or something else happens where I feel like I have to make a move, that if I try to sneak out, I'm going to bump him. Because the second you bump him, you just decrease your chances of, of killing him ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so you're just you're just and kind of what I do is I just ride that bubble, and it's you're all it's you're just and I just make my rotations and rounds. About you hear people like you know talking about checking their temperature, see how they are. Um, just kind of check them, you know, once a week, and you'll you'll either one or two things is going to happen. Somebody's going to beat you to them just because the public land; he's not going to be there. Or if you're if you have the time and you can be consistent with it. Um, you know, just like I said, getting it on him, but not too tight. And when when he's when he's right, it, you know, they're 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 ready to ready to die. And the one thing I've figured out is that, and this isn't be different. I've seen differences in South Alabama, Central Mississippi. When I was there in, there in the Starkville, up here around Oxford, in the North from here to the the Tennessee line, um, the little bit of Tennessee and Kentucky I've hunted, I've seen it different. But there's there's certain time periods and I, I think a lot of it from year to year is going to be based on weather mainly photo period though um on when those birds are ready to play the game and i can just about tell you at each at each section of the of the, the states that i've hunted when you know this week for Al, for that area of south alabama this week for our area here in north mississippi this this week for kentucky the area i like to go up there um and you can just about set your clockwork because it's so photo period based that they're more willing to play the games during that four or five days of the year as compared to, you know, like in Mississippi, the first two weeks.
0: We, we got to talk more about the whole photo period thing because you hear about this for deer. Um, mm-hmm. I've never heard anybody talk about this for turkeys. You know, you are a veterinarian. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a, a bit of credit when it comes to that because you work with animals. Um, maybe not with turkeys other than shooting them. But, I, I am curious on how have you kind of figured this out? What is your thoughts on the photo period? And, like, is this just based on personal experience? Or are you talking to other guys, too, talking about, like, hey, for whatever reason, it seems like this week's always super hot, you know, based off this region of the state, you know, based off what you're talking to people like. Well, How have you kind of come about yeah. this, and and how does it actually look like? And can maybe give us an example of how you're able to, like, set a, a said um, – say, four- or five-day period that's, like, typically mm-hmm. always hot and it's something that you're like, hey, I'm going to be in the woods these four or five days based off past experiences?
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of a mixture of all of it. I mean, when you look at the research, it definitely shows photo period and the time of the year plays a a, um, a role in it. Because if it didn't, I mean, especially this year, how realistically warm of a, um, like, late winter, early spring we had, these turkeys that already have gone – through the initials, been bred, been laying, and been grouped back up in the, in the groups of toms by now with how early it started. So, you know, there, there's definitely photo period involvement with it. Um, and then also I can go back and look at for kind of that South Alabama aspect, I can say, okay, this seven day block or five day block is when I've killed most of my birds with the type of hunts that you think about. Of course, you always kill birds outside of that. There's always your outliers. But when you're shooting 60 to 70% of your birds in, in, inside of this state range, it definitely shows something. Um, and that, uh, the only way you can figure that, that out for a specific area is having a group of buddies you trust, just to be honest, if they're actually killing birds or not, um, or just saying they kill birds just to make themselves feel better about themselves. Um, and then also tracking your own data over multiple, multiple, multiple years. And so
0: Interesting. Now, how have you seen that differ? Like, you don't have to say, like, specific weeks, but, like, how big of a difference are you, have you seen in, like, say, a South Alabama versus, like, Southern Mississippi? So, like, you know, where you're at now, the state and other states, how much of a difference has it been? Is it just, like, a, especially talking about South Alabama and South Mississippi or, like, mm-hmm. Oxford area, how big of a difference are you seeing just, like, ranges as in, like, how many days difference? And, like, how specific does it get on, like, certain areas of certain states from what you've seen?
2: and so the range like from during that inside a year i think that's a lot of where the weather plays a part in it um because you know how it is i mean you have you end up just catching a bad, bad luck and every day you can go turkey hunt is a rainy morning of course you're going to have a slow year and especially in that subset it's going to be slow just cuz those turkeys wake up wet they're not happy and i mean if you're like if they're wet and not and wet and not happy they're not going to be as as interested as they, they could not Um, on a nice, clear, crisp morning um, in hens and and, and go on through those cycles. But um, I'll just say South Mississippi compared to up here, I'm seeing about a a week and a half to two-week offset. Um, My kind of bread and butter time up here is that first kind of week to week and a half, depending on when April and Easter and all that kind of falls. I kind of base it around Easter. Um, but leading up that that five to seven days before Easter is usually when I've had my best luck every year. Um, South Alabama, it was when it came in on the fifteenth. The fifteenth is okay, but it was that kind of second week, that second week, to, oh two, a week and a half into season, somewhere in there when it really start kicking off, depending on the weather for that year. Yeah, and, and that kind of, like I so said, that kind of lines up my, my last year there to where is great weather it was where we usually started getting hot anyways like i said we that first you know week to week and a half it was we couldn't wait to get up out of bed and be more miserably sleep deprived because we're shooting shooting and hearing that many birds
1: to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business
0: icons.
2: This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and
1: entertainment
0: true lock chokes has been made in georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities you might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a true lock choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance absolutely guaranteed and as a great example we have andrew maxwell here and uh andrew you've had some pretty good luck again kind of switching out chokes and trying out the precision hunter choke from true lock so andrew what's been your experience so far
1: yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now and never really thought much of it. And I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50 yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable. Like everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old
0: choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option, same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give Truelock a shot this spring, you can head over to trulockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at trulockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with Truelock. I want to maybe take a step back and talk about some of these roosts. I was taking notes, um, Mm -hmm. kind of with some of the things you're, you're talking about. Um, one thing I'm interested in is the data, like the personal data you get when you hear turkeys gobbling on the roofs and, Mm -hmm. and generally trying to mark them on your maps. Um, and how does that, how does that compare? how does that look after a whole season? Like if you're spending a whole season in like a general area or a piece of public land, or like, you know, we've been on Andrew's hunting club recently. Mm-hmm. is Does that data based off like where you're hearing birds seem pretty consistent or every now and then you get some outliers and kind of how do you use that data with, I guess, year over year experience on a specific property when it comes to like, again, that historical roost sites.
2: Uh- so they, to what I've seen is they pretty much stick close to those historic roof sites as far as the primary, maybe the secondary bird that's in charge. Like that that main that main guy in there, like he's usually going to be at that main roof site in there. Depending on how many subordinate toms and, and jakes are with them, to me that they just kind of filter out and get to wherever they want to um, kind of just – pitch off and roost at so um like this year off one of my my favorite primary roost site that i have here um comes down a finger ridge right over to some water and there's but it's not a long ridge it's maybe only oh shoot maybe two three hundred yards long but there's one two three four five finger ridges off of it two on one side three on the other um and the side that has three, the second ridge down, goes down steep, flattens out. And they love pitching off of it, up into the big, some big oak trees that are off the end. And it's a real easy just, you know, 15-foot jump off the trees to get down to that big, that big spot. There's typically always a bird sitting there. Last year, the subordinate birds wanted to be on the other side of the ridge on those, on those two primary fingers. This year, I've noticed that the subordinate birds are crossing the creek up to the next ridge over and roosting off the end of it. Um, so, I, like, it, it changes from year to year on subordinate birds just on where they feel hens are going to filter in and out and um, kind of where they just are more comfortable at, I think. But like I said, I think they that gets into the having a ridge that has multiple secondary fingers as compared to just one long primary is because it gives those subordinates a way just to kind of stick closer for when those hens start kind of dropping away from that that main tom that's
0: in there see now i'm, I'm super excited about this because this sets up just based on where we've been hunting recently andrew's club
2: mm-hmm. what you
0: just explained is very similar to some of the sites that we've been seeing especially recently the last few days and, and very similar setups when you find an area and you're kind of learning an area like this and how the turkeys the gobblers are really using it how does that dictate how you go about hunting that area when there's a gobbler being vocal in one of those locations like based off you're talking about that primary secondary ridge on that, that three ridge side, that three secondary ridge side. You know, the second mm-hmm. one downs typically where, you know, it seems like the more dominant gobbler wants to be at. Based off if you go into the woods and you're hearing that, how do you go about typically hunting an area like that? Positioning yourself, especially if you have maybe a couple of different vocal birds in there. How do you go about kind of mm-hmm. setting up and working through that? Which kind of will lead into another question I've got.
2: And so this goes early turkey hunting career to run down it and been right at the top of that second finger ridge from day one um i've changed how i approach it and i go into an area a lot slower now because i figured out that early on these these birds don't really care much about you the first part of the season um and so instead of running down that ridge the first week or two essentially what i'm doing isn't going into hunt I'm just going in with a shotgun to listen and take inventory um, that way, especially the first three or four days when they're not gobbling a ton every single day, they're just kind of gobbling when they want to, cause they know hens are around, they're slowly getting into it. Um, and so I'll kind of base myself at my listening point at the start of that primary ridge, if that makes sense. Um, cause this ridge comes, starts from a road, comes down pr- public, crosses into private and then comes back on the public again. So I'll loop around and get on the second public side, if that makes sense. Um, and I'll start riding against the private line before I get down to those other ridges. to. Cut. So I just don't bump birds off a of roost early on in the year. And then for that specific year when I figure out, okay, there's my primary root site where I know they like to be at, but this year they're wanting to use the first ridge on the right side and then the next ridge over across the creek um it tells me kind of that information that i need to have how to move through an area without busting birds off of a roost because the less you pressure birds the um the more likely you are to kill them um and i even take that as far as my scouting i i think people get way too aggressive with their scouting early on for two reasons It's all, I think a lot of it is people are just getting that point where they're getting that itch and they want to hear one gobble. So they dive off in the woods with them and they bust them out of a tree by accident or they hear one gobble and they want to get closer to it. Um, All you're just pressuring those birds and you're telling them, hey, hunting season's coming. And so because of that, I don't go in the woods because I don't want to put any extra pressure on them. But the other part of it is, if I have a specific, like this year I had a, a specific draw that was only good for the first two days. So I went in there heavy before season, so I get the best out of that draw. Just because I'm going to use my bet the time best as I can, I need that information. But being as lucky as we are here in Mississippi, having 45 days to shoot a turkey, I don't need that information before season because I'm going to pressure the birds, make them harder to kill, and by the time we get two weeks in a season, what I learned beforehand is going to be non-viable anyways because they're going to move areas, they're going to break up, they're going to be in they're not going to be in their primary flocks anymore and they're going to spread out but I have to relearn everything. And So really I don't and outside of one unless I have a, a hard to get draw that for those first two days I don't step foot foot in the turkey woods until until the day it opens. Um primarily because I don't want to pressure those birds. Um and like I said it's it's worked out for me this this last several years
0: the kind of follow-up to that kind of question and what you were just mentioning mm-hmm. on when you're on one of these days that maybe you have three, four, five plus turkeys that are gobbling. If you're, you know, blessed to hunt an area where you got, you know, a decent amount of vocal, um, gobblers, how Dumb. do you go about, you know, you're talking about your mentor from South Alabama, how he told you about slowing down. How do you go mm-hmm. about figuring out what Turkey to go after, especially in the morning? Um, with a couple different things in mind, you know, say if you're on public land or maybe you're yep. on private land where there's you're not the only person that has access to that property, Uh like uh-huh. you're in a hunting club, you know, people kind of move around. How do you go about figuring out which turkey to go after and what are you kind of contemplating in your mind as these birds are being vocal? Sometimes, you know, we had a situation opening day. There was a bird fairly close. So it's probably within three, four hundred yards of us that gobbled, I think, once and he kind of mm-hmm. shut up. And then we had, you know, four or five others that were gobbling, some a lot more than others. How do you go about yep. figuring out how do you want to navigate without bumping other turkeys, bumping other gobblers? Mm-hmm. How do you try to figure out how you're going to work your way through a situation and go step
2: on a specific turkey based off what they're giving you for that morning? And so that's actually one reason why he likes to slow down is so you can get a good pin on where all these birds are sitting. Um, and I'll use the bird my wife shot couple here um the first weekend here in Mississippi. I use that one as a perfect example. Um we got there at a high listening point and we heard one, two, three, potentially four goblin. Um one of them way off, knew it wasn't an option. The second one was back towards where some other guys were hunting at. So we didn't want to um and it was close ish, but we but we just didn't we didn't want to be respectful and didn't want to kind of get put two groups together, especially when we heard multiple birds the um there was one bird directly off in front of us across the creek that's the one we initially set up on but then there was a, the fourth one was way off to our our south um probably seven eight hundred yards he didn't say much but the key with this is they're all off different directions and so we made our first move on what's probably the dominant bird in that area and had has most of the hens gobbled two or three times on the tree really good we made our move got set up on the, where we felt we were on the other side of the ridge from him, waiting for him to gobble again so we didn't bump him, kind of keep some tabs on him, gobbled once more, didn't feel like we could make a move, and he never showed up. We sat there for about 30 minutes, but then while we were sitting there, Emily finally tapped me. She's like, you not hear that bird gobbling? Well, and I, I didn't hear him because one, I'm kind of in Andrew's state where my hearing's not the best. Um, <laughs> But then also he was on the back side of the tree and so i was looking facing away from him like i said he was from where we first set up at to where we or he was gobbling that was 600 yards across a bottom up on the next ridge and it was a real thick like green briar thicket underneath these pines and just like everywhere else we're greening up early this year just because of the wet the early spring we had and so that creek bottom was pretty green and that sound wasn't traveling the best through it but because even though we felt like we were much closer to the first bird we sit up on, that bird was hot. I mean, he wouldn't stop gobbling. He was looking for him so hard. I was like, you know, and that tells you, hey, he's on the ground gobbling every 30 seconds to two minutes when this one's not saying a word. If I know I can move around that close bird without bumping him and get to that hot one, I'm going to go chase that hot bird. Um, but if we had just hauled butt and got in real tight to that first bird and we gobbled on the limb, we didn't, we'd have been in a position to where we wouldn't have been able to make a move on the bird that was actually ready to play the game that morning, if that makes sense. Also, vice versa, like, already, like I mentioned, if you sit there and listen and you hear one bird at 200 yards and directly behind him another one at 600 yards, you know realistically there's no – and even if the bird at 600 yards is gobbling a lot more, it's going to be pretty hard to get around that close bird um, to make a move on it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, you may just, you know, kind of test your cards, see kind of what holds and go around, you know, the next morning loop around that bird that was in a better mood than the one you initially were set up on.
1: When you're setting up on a bird, what is your thought process like where you're walking through the woods and and you're trying to get close to him and you say, okay, this is a spot I can call him to. Like, why Mm -hmm. is that a spot you can call him to? If that makes sense.
2: And so, what I'm looking for is, I rarely use decoys, just because decoys work. I've shot plenty of them over decoys. I don't have anything wrong with them. I'm just getting old, er. I'm not going to say I'm old yet, um, but I just don't want to carry that extra weight. And so, I quit carrying them. Um, and the reason I was carrying them is because I, there in Alabama, um, birds would would use some really wide in this areas. I was, I was hunting mid morning. They'd get up on some really long like when I say long they're very 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 long sandy roads and strut back and forth and you may work a bird and it pop out at you know five feet or 600 yards down this road and if they didn't see a turkey on it they weren't coming in so you had to give them a visual aspect um to draw them in down there in a lot of these places but here Miss zebra hunting there's a lot more finger ridges and creeks and everything you get into and kind of um play the curiosity game with me and so if if I'm going down a ridge and I know they're gobbling on say the left side of it, I'm going to stay on that right side and ease down it and then set up right on the other side of that crest and make, make them come across looking for the hen that that got lost o- overnight or blown out of the tree or something like that. But I'm always going to try to keep some kind of big feature between me, whether if it's the crest of a ridge or a big down um, like Sunday morning, I kept a a real big oak tree that's probably five, six foot in diameter, than blown down in the storm. Kept that between me and those birds. They had to come around the end of that log um, looking for that hen, and I just set up you know, where I have a, a shot at 20 to 40 yards off both sides of it um, and really play that hide-the-hen kind of game with them. The way to do that is, one, kind of, w- once again, moving slowly, looking for where you feel like you can set up. Um, Allowing him to give you the information and tabs on his own. I don't. I think these birds, especially on public land, figure out what a hoot owl call sounds like, and they quit gobbling at it. And they know that that last time I heard that exact same sound because 900 people have bought that call in Oxford, Mississippi from the same Walmart. Um, that that's going to be a person that's trying to come in on me. It just doesn't sound like a real call. So I I carry hoot out calls and crow calls, but I don't use them. Um, unless I'm getting down on the wire and need to make stuff happen on a trip, I, I let those turkeys wake up on their own um, and, and let them, and I move in on quiet before I, before I say anything. Um, cause that's also going to tell me kind of how he's feeling. Um, if he's not feeling the best, I'm going to stay more likely to stay a little bit further away. Cause if he gobbles three or four times the tree and then once on the ground, I don't want to be that close to him because if I need to back out, I can back out without bumping him. But if he's gobbling a lot in the tree, I I can get in a little bit closer because I'm more confident he's going to gobble a ton on the ground because he's looking for those hens and he's and he's staying more distracted um gobbling, which allows me to get a little bit closer.
1: That kind of rolls into uh, the second part of what I was about to ask you there, and that is, is there any kind of set distance that you're trying to get yourself to to try to actually call up a turkey? You know, some people say they want to be within 150 yards. Some people say get as close as you can and then go one tree closer, you know, like there's some different thoughts on it. Is there any mm-hmm. set rule for how close you want to be? Or are there situations where you're confident calling that bird, you know, 300 yards to you?
2: So I let the terrain, the time of year dictate that. I'm gonna, And I'm going to let my personal confidence tell me in that specific moment because I'm going to get as close as I feel I can get without getting picked off. Of course, later in the year because it's a lot greener, you can get a lot closer. But you know, if you're in a big, wide open oak bottom and they can see for 500 yards down this thing, if if the sun's up, you better stay away. Or they're going to see you. Um, because it's, it's it, so I'm going to let my confidence in in that specific time and how I'm moving and how quiet the leaves are and how hard this turkey's gobbling. Because like I said if he's gobbling harder, I'm going to push it a little more than if he's just gobbling once every. Ten fifteen 15 minutes on a limb and once on the ground. Um, And kind of let that individual scenario kind of tell me um, kind of like, like, I mentioned last time, when I'm making these moves on the turkeys, the way I, the way I say it is I don't just listen to the turkeys. I listen to the woods. Um let that woodsmanship kind of tell me because, and because if I can, if the leaves are wet after a big storm, I can definitely sneak in a lot, a lot closer than if I want on a, a Oak Ridge, then it's, you know, sounds like I'm jumping on packing peanuts every time I take a step. And so, and there, you know, that gets into later in the day as well. But, you know, that just even starts right there. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I'm not one of the guys that says I have to be at 100 yards or 150 yards. I'm going to get as close as I can com- confidently enough to where I know I haven't bumped him. And then, because once he's on the ground, two things are going to happen. One, he's not going to be able to see you as easy when you're on the backside of a ridge, or the backside of a brush pile. But two, the woods are going to be louder. Um, If you listen, if you, as the woods wake up, you have birds chirping, you have squirrels that get out, you have hawks and buzzards that are flying around and making noise. Um, And those, even though it seems insignificant, those things cover up a lot of your noise yourself. And you can, once he's on the ground and he's giving you enough to keep tabs on him, you can make a much better move than when he's up in that tree.
1: Yeah, wonder. You mentioned a lot of stuff there that that's some very fine tuned woodsmanship skills. You know, kind of listening to the woods and picking up on the subtle things, and and other critters out in the woods kind of masking your sound. And you also mentioned that earlier in the podcast. There's, like, subtle small things that you can do that make a big difference. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, walking on the, the far side of the road so you're not silhouetted against the light sand or gravel of the road. That that Like, that's an excellent tip. Are Are there any other just little kind of woodsmanship things that you've picked up along the way that you think are making a big difference for you?
2: So i think a lot of woodsmanship i answered this way is it goes it goes back to what joe kind of beat into me um is just slowing down because when you're slow you there's two big things going to happen one you're going to hear a lot better because you're not out of breath and huffing and puffing and you're you hear your heartbeat in your ears um that's covering up a lot of the the sounds of the woods but then also you're going to sound more like a turkey yourself um and so, because turkeys don't typically, and I say typically because we literally, la- the Saturday English shot her bird, we had to sprint through the woods to keep up with him. He was on top of the ridge. We were on the creek bottom. And I was sweating, dripping of sweat from a, the fastest 40-meter sprint I've ever done in my life. Um, but now, like I said, that was circumstantial. But typically, turkeys don't move fast through the woods. They'll cover a couple hundred yards, maybe tops a day. And that's over a 12-hour period. They're moving, you know, 150 to 200 yards before they jump back up in a tree. Um, And so I think that if you slow down and act like a turkey in the areas that you feel like turkeys are in, you have more success. But if you're in an area of a ridge or spot on a creek bottom that you've never seen turkeys on, you're not hearing turkeys, it doesn't look like turkeys are there, why do you want to spend 40 minutes hunting your way through it? Go ahead and qu- find a way to quietly get through it and then slow down and, and, act and put yourself in that kind of turkey mode. Um, again, that, that's everything from how I place my feet to, um, you know, as I'm moving through these woods, instead of yelling at them real loud and cutting hard on the slate on these, on these windless days, it's just real soft bubble clucks and whines and whistles as I'm moving through the woods. Um, to go from tree to tree, and then when I get that tree, I'll sit there for four or five minutes to see if one gobbles at me as I stop because he was keeping tabs on my footsteps like they do a lot. And if I want to, if I want to call on a slate or box call or something at that point in time, I'll do it while I'm in a tr- at a tree like that. But just a call real quick, you know, move 200 yards real fast, um, call again. I think I think we're a lot more birds than we realize are hearing us. But because they're being turkeys, they're not just gobbling their heads off and cutting us off. They're, you know, they're starting to work our way more silently than than not. And I've shot a handful of them just because that I was moving through the woods just trying to mimic the sounds of a turkey from how I place my feet. So I'll even, like, with my foot scratching the leaves a little bit to make it sound like one's just working his way down a ridge or up a road to where I'll hear one just kind of cluck or whine or whistle or do whatever just saying hey i'm over here Set down on him up the ridge and he's he's done um and i i feel wholeheartedly about about that, that a lot of people just go run and gun way too fast um i was actually having a conversation the other day with a client of mine in the room and we started talking about that and we both kind of have the same outlook on it to where we we don't like the term run and gun because that's to us that says hey i'm gonna Cover as much ground as I possibly can to find the loudest, hottest two-year-old bird I possibly can. Those birds are a blast, but we don't like to run a gun. We like to prospect, we like to take our time and slow down, and find those birds that everybody is going past, um, and kind of sit and, and, and work and work those. So,
0: Matt, I want to talk to you about uh, calling sequences on pressured birds, specifically on public land. What is your outlook on that, especially as the season progresses? You know, right now, you know, by the time this this episode comes out, it's still fairly early on in you know Alabama season and uh-huh. and uh, Mississippi season, and some states are just now starting to open up. By the time this episode comes out, what is your thoughts on that calling sequence? Again, as those birds get bumped, as they get pressure, as you know, there's opportunities. Those turkeys probably get called by other guys, and some for some reason they don't get killed. How does your calling change as that pressure gets ramped up or does it change? And maybe kind of talk to us a little bit about that.
2: So it doesn't change. um, Because what I'm doing, I'm not going through a call sequence that I feel works. Once again, woodsmanship and listening to the woods I'm doing, I'm doing what I can to make me confident that I'm calling these birds enough to where they can say, Hey, I know you're there, but not get too far away from what those birds are doing in the woods. Um, you know, if it's a rainy day and hens aren't yelping and cutting, you probably shouldn't be yelling at them as loud as you can, because they know that something's a little off. Um, typically on those days when, when most turkeys are quiet and one's just all of a sudden cutting up and getting after you, um, and getting after something that's, it's typically because something negative and not positive has happened. Um. Of course, there's times of the year, once again, where well, that, that can kind of change, especially when you're in that kind of that hot area and hot in, in every w- window for um, kind of where you're living at. And I'm a little more aggressive during that window, but typically by the time we get to that, that area, I've got enough birds kind of ca- um, cataloged to where as long as I'm not just completely beat to all my spots, that I'm in an area that I'm confident a bird is in. And so instead of, I'm you just know, trying to cover six miles, looking for one. I'll cover 600 yards. I'm confident a bird in a day. I'm confident a bird is there. I'm just trying to make him, I'm just spending that time acting like a turkey. i trying to make him think, hey, I'm with these two hens this morning. I know she's up there on top of the ridge. I'm going to check her at 10 o'clock.
0: Now, so, on those quiet days, you're talking about like, you know, I, I want to talk about this, is those days when maybe like the wind dies down. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, like literally you could hear if, if, if a turkey is walking in the woods a hundred yards from you, you're going to hear it walking more than likely you scratching yeah. around. What does that look like? Especially like when you hit that, tree? like, Hey, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. It, maybe it's a mm-hmm. little bit more of a blind call set. Maybe the turkeys weren't really gobbling great on the roost. What What's kind of working through your mind about making it realistic, especially again on areas that, you know, these turkeys are getting some kind of hunting pressure.
2: And so what I focus on is because we call it deer hunting them for a reason. Um, is I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on fresh sign, and I'm gonna go through that area, um, acting like a turkey. Small short steps, light pressure on the leaves, scratching the leaves a little bit with my feet just to make it sound like a bird's moving through the woods. Um, I'm not gonna yelp that loud or that much uh, because these birds aren't yelping looking for other turkeys. But if you're if you're ever lucky enough to get and this happened a couple times there um, to where I was able to slip up on a group of hens that didn't know I was there. And they're a lot, they, they conversate and are a lot louder than people realize, but their hearing is so good, that they don't have to be as loud as we think they need to be. Um, we, people have a bad problem of humanizing animals and don't get, and not giving them the credit that um, they truly deserve for things like hearing to where, people have bad hearing. They think that we have to yell at everything to allow it to hear us just because we want to hear ourselves. That's not it at all. I mean, these turkeys will be spread out and I've slipped in on them would be spread out, you know, 20, 30 yards and you could barely hear them yelping at each other and whistling and whining at each other. And somebody would do something and they would pop up like they'd just been screamed at by the, by an angry wife. Um, They knew exactly what was going on and where, where they were at. So with that, I've gotten a lot quieter in my calling sequences as I'm moving through the woods. Um, And then when I get to an area where there is fresh sign, I'll sit on that area and kind of deer hunt it and blind call in it, you know, hour, hour and a half, just to see what's going to happen, because you don't know what that routine is, what they're going to do that day to come through there. But if if they're used to coming through an area at some point in the day and they hear you ahead of them, that's where... Not only will I go through whistling, whining, and scratching the leaves while I'm sitting there leaning against the tree, I may yelp a little bit louder, just to encourage them to get there a little sooner. Um, Say, hey, I'm here. Come on, I'm I'm waiting for you. Um, But I'm not going to, you know, bring my box call out or get my my slate call and really cut and get really aggressive with it. And so a lot of times where I'll get aggressive with my calling is if it's later in the season and I'm really starting to... um, get to the point where birds the other been shot or very, 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 um, pressured and I'm just tired of moving slow and want to wear my legs out. I'll go over to a piece of big public ground and I'll cover some, I'll cover and that's where I'll get louds when I am truly running and gunning just because I want to change up. Cause I, I like, you know, covering some ground a lot of times too, seeing some different woods, but that's also when I'm kind of scouting for next year is just that those last two or three weeks of season, And even though I'm looking for a bird, I'm mainly learning a new area for next year. To be honest, so I can go in and say, "Okay, I know there's this trail here. I found scratching here. I, you know, I didn't shoot one. I got one to gobble right here, and then I'll use that to hunt hunt through an area slow the 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 next year." Um, But anyways, back to where I was at. um, I'll get a little louder, kind of yelping, trying to get them to get there. But I'm not just going to scream at them. if I know, if I'm pretty confident there, that they're used to working through that area because it's different from what their daily routine is. And the closer you can stick to that turkey's daily routine, the more comfortable they are to commit to where to what you're asking them to do.
0: So one thing we we uh, actually witness uh, opening day <laughs> is, and I think you don't really realize this unless you're in areas of a lot of open terrain where you can really watch turkeys and watch a gobbler. Mm-hmm. He may hear you. We had one. We didn't realize he was there until Andrew's mm-hmm. halfway through a, a cutting sequence, and I'm filming Andrew. We're on the edge of a clear cut, like we're not in the clear cut. We're just inside the pines on a logging road, but I can mm-hmm. see into the clear cut, and Andrew's got a couple pine trees between him and the clear cut. I'm filming him, and he starts cutting. And also, I'm like looking like off the camera, like right past him. I'm like, man, that's a weird looking stump out there. And It's like not far. Mm-hmm. It's like 80 yards from us. And all of a sudden, that stump starts moving. I, I see some color. like, And all of a sudden, it gets iridescent. I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm like, Andrew, there's a turkey. It's a gobbler. He's straightened right there. The footage is good. You can see it back there. I'll watch okay. the footage. Okay. So it's crazy. Like, And we had just worked a bird in that same spot a little bit earlier. That got pretty mm-hmm. close. It's probably within 50, 60 yards of us, gobbling pretty heavy. Then we had a hen come across the road. Hen went to him, and he shut up and was gone. Yep. So, and this was a different turkey on a little ridge point going off into that clear cut, fresh clear cut. In long, Where I'm trying to get at is one thing I've kind of just, after that experience, and I, I've heard other people talk about it, is sometimes those gobblers hear you, but they're on that, you know, gobble zone, strut zone, whatever you want to call it, little mm-hmm. leck, and he might not want to leave it, and you're just inside that bubble where, like, he knows you're there, he hears you, but he's just going to keep displaying and it makes me wonder how many times – and we watched that bird for a long time. I'm talking like an hour and a half, put a play on him. He worked off that ridge point to the clear, clear cut. We circle around him, got in him, another call in sequence, sat there for 30 minutes, nothing happened, and Andrew goes up over the ridge into that, in the clear cut, and the turkey's down and off that point just chilling. Didn't care. Yeah. Did not care about what we were doing. He definitely knew we were there. He heard us. But it, it, it makes me wonder – how often people would set up, like in a spot, there's a lot of turkeys on, you may sit there for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and there could be a turkey 100 yards from you. He hears you, but he's just displaying, doing his thing. Maybe just, in, he's in the woods, you're in the woods with him. But he's not too worried about coming up to you at that point, but he definitely hears you. But how often about, like, if you sat there for an extended period of time, kind of go back to our hunt from yesterday, right? Ye- yesterday, yeah. the afternoon yeah. hunt. That we were on one of these little ridge points. So we had just seen some gobblers work across on that power line, mm-hmm. sat there for like maybe 30 minutes. Nothing happened after we, you know, Andrew had called and then we got up and moved. And like within 45 minutes later, to an hour later, they're gobbling on that ridge point, probably within 50 yards of where we were just sitting. How often oh, yeah. those turkeys could have been just right off that point, you know, within 100 yards, they're doing their thing, strutting. Mm-hmm. But if maybe if you would have sat there a little bit longer, maybe did some more soft calling and stuff like that scratching the whole 9 yards at some point they're like okay i got to go up there and see what these hens are doing and like maybe that like yeah. curiosity factor brings them in versus like again kind of just bounce around i mean what is your thoughts on that about them tur- those turkeys kind of like they've got their spot they're comfortable at it and maybe just cuz of the woods we don't we can't really see them but if you spend mm-hmm. a little bit more time there at some point that turkey's going to potentially break and come up to you
2: yeah so that's where that's what i call a weekend bird um, because you need more time than, you know, just the first hour or two of daylight to be able to kill them. A lot of times I think those are more of the dominant birds in the area because they know hens are coming to their specific gobble. And if they're coming to their – I mean, turkeys are lazy animals, if you think about it, especially the toms, because they're the hens are supposed to go to them, so why are they going to go looking if they don't have to? So especially early season, I think they sit there in a spot and just spin circles those dominant birds do because they know the hens are coming if they're not already, excuse me, if they're not already roosted, um, with those hens. That's, um, we got on one, this was Friday morning. Um, the second morning we were on him. Um, I knew we were going to have trouble from the get go because every time he gobbled seven or eight times on true on the tree, um, like twice on the ground. Like he just completely went dead over the next hour and a half. Once he hit the ground, um, because every time he would he would gobble, a hen on a tree directly below him would cut him off. Like tell him to shut up, she's right there. Um, and because of that, you've kind of got to wait for kind of the right time and let those hens go away. Because he's keeping tabs on where you're at. They may be lazy, but they're also greedy. Those dominant birds are, and they want as many hens as um, they, can, they can get. And so once those hens leave, pick up these other girls. Other side of that, why I'm not, aggra- I don't call aggressive to those birds, especially early season. If you call too aggressively, those hens will be selfish and they will take those gobblers away from you on purpose. They'll walk that bird off the other way once they go get him. Um, and so if you just are very subtle in your calling, um, and once he, he starts warming back up, that's when you get more, a little bit more aggressive with your calling, kind of match what the hen, what the hens are doing or, or it may not be the him but match what the, the tom's doing. If he's not gobbling, he's probably not going to respond most of the time to hard calling. Um, but if he's if he's gobbling pretty good and you you don't overcall, you can definitely be more aggressive in your calling sequences just to keep his interest peaked. Um, and then, little tip of the trade is once you get him his interest interest peaked, I don't like throwing my call away because I don't have to dig another one out or have a dirty call put my back in my mouth. But put your call in, cheeky, in the pouch of your cheek, so you're not. It's not there for you to call. You have to actually think about. Okay, I'm going to put it back in place. Be able to call on him again because mm. he knows you're there. Now you got to wait. Now you got to make him think that hen left and have him go look for
1: it. How do you know that you you've successfully piqued his interest?
2: Um, I mean, if if I if I call and he answers me answers me within a couple seconds, ideally cut him off. Or cuts me off once, maybe twice. I'm I'm gonna I'm done calling for 20, 30 minutes. I'm gonna make him uh, start gobbling again, looking and looking and looking. Um, and a lot of times, when they if they'll if you'll pick their interest, they'll start cutting you off or responding real rapidly, and you get quiet. Um, and then you let them start gobbling three, four, five times in a row. Whether if they're double or triple gobbling, it's gonna be real hard not to call at them. But if you can keep yourself calling at them. There's a good chance that bird's going to get frustrated and curious and break and come looking, um, looking for you. That's ex- that's exactly how we we killed my wife's first bird um, last week or the first weekend here in Mississippi. So I guess it was two weekends ago now. Um, I mean, he was hot. He was definitely wasn't the dominant bird in the area. He was a subordinate bird that was just looking for any hen that wanted to hang out with him he moved he was in one spot, nothing showed up. So he, he either followed a hen or went looking for one and got on a kind of a strut zone and there's no way we can get inside of 150 on him without getting picked off. Um, and he was gobbling hard, finally got quiet. I was like, all right, I've got, this is, this will be a time to tell me if I can get him to answer me or if he's just gobbling to gobble. Um, and I, cause he'd calmed down for four or five minutes. And so I yelped at him. Um, loud enough to make sure he knew um, I was there, but not overly aggressive to kind of startle him. Um, Once again, think of it as a a wife yelling at, or a girlfriend yelling at you. Nobody enjoys getting yelled at. You want to get talked to. Um, Same thing as people, Um, and turkeys are the same way. So I kind of just kind of talked to him. he him say, hey, I'm over here. Good stuff to eat down this creek bottom. Come join me. Um, A second after I called, double gobbled. Okay. All right. Then he got heated back up. Um, so I let him calm back down, let him gobble, and this is over about 10 15 minutes. He gobbled five six times on his own, like okay, I'm gonna call at him again. Called at him again, um, and he cut me off. Like, okay, he definitely knows I'm here, he's just not wanting to break off this little ridge. Hen came in, got her excited, Was she's really what helped me break it because once she started, I got her excited, and she started moving towards me. Um, it he finally broke off that ridge, but if you just if you did give them enough to keep them interested and they'll play that hard to get game and make them come to you, and they'll they'll eventually break. Well, if you have to sit on for twenty seconds or two hours, um, but if you keep them too excited, they're never going to cross that creek. They're never going to come off that little knoll or ridge. They're never going to do the stuff because they're too excited. You've got to let them calm down a little bit to let them gather their thoughts to say. I may need to go look instead of just sitting here, being too excited.
1: Mm-hmm. Matt, we're sitting at a little bit over an hour here um, to get to a point of wrapping up. Is there is there any other tips you might give somebody? Maybe maybe especially a newer turkey hunter who's kind of giving it a go this year, uh, and, and you know maybe this is like their second or third year turkey hunting. Like any any advice mm-hmm. you'd give to that person?
2: Um. I mean, really, my, I mean, my big once again, and I just, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse with it. The And I'm, I'm saying it because this is what hurt me in my early years after I kind of started shot one, had the big gap, shot a second one. And I was getting really, really, really excited and felt pressured just because of what social media is to keep tabs and keep pace with everybody else that's shooting birds. Don't care, don't give a care in the world about what other people are doing. Go out and enjoy your time in the woods and learn something every time you're there, whether if you have, whether if you're successful in shooting a bird or successful in calling a bird inside a shotgun range whether if you shoot it or not. Um, So don't let, you know, don't get caught up in all the social media stuff on having to shoot a bird and let that interfere with how um, you would personally hunt them. Because once you let other other social media aspect and the pressure of kind of keeping tabs with everybody else, your season is going to go downhill just quit caring about it go out and enjoy the woods slow down <laughs> once again beating that dead horse and just enjoy it and learn as much as you can because it's not about everybody wants to shoot a bird but it's not all about shooting a bird it's you know it's the interaction with it that we all like and well if you to me the way i look at it is like uh, i'm successful in a hunt if i bring a bird in and put him inside a shotgun range on in an area that i can shoot um well, if i shoot him or not so um and it's just a an an added benefit and and bonus if I could carry one out occasionally so
1: mm-hmm. absolutely man uh where can people kind of follow along with you by the way like like on
2: Instagram and stuff um i mean i've got my instagram duck, dog vet um put out a lot of of course this time of year a lot of turkey hunting just stuff um throughout the year i try to keep a lot of kind of just of course i i love um Kind of working dogs and working dog medicine and stuff, but it, really it's medicine that can and information that can be used for every pet that's out there in the world. Um, of course, there's some fishing stuff in there because me and my wife like to chase some some big red fish down there in Louisiana a little bit. But like I said, it's Duck Dog Vet there on Instagram is the best place. And um, and if y'all got any questions about turkey hunting, canine medicine, cat medicine, I mean whatever it may be, y'all just don't hesitate. I'm I'm more than happy to talk about all of it
1: awesome man well matt we appreciate you coming on and uh wish you the best of luck getting after those turkeys for the rest of the spring
2: yes yeah, sir y'all too
0: yeah, absolutely and listeners yeah appreciate y'all listening to this episode if you like this episode let us know leave us a uh leave us a uh, review over on apple Podcasts. Uh, we're trying to get a to thousand reviews i think we're currently seeing like 975 uh go leave us a review let us know what your thoughts on this episode and also if you have success using what matt talked about in this episode make sure you let us know shoot us a message but also go fill out a listener success uh document form on our website the southern outdoorsman.com love to hear about those stories get some of those stories published And, uh, Matt, thanks to you for joining us. And, guys, make sure you check us out on the next episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. And don't forget the YouTube channel, guys. we got awesome weekly video content coming up on the YouTube channel. So go check that out on YouTube. Just search the Southern Outdoorsman. So, Matt, thanks again for joining us. And listeners, we'll catch you back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast.
1: Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th. Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the Mobile dot com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the Mobile Hunters